My guest today is a seasoned South African media darling with over 20 years of experience in news broadcasting. Joanne Joseph is also a best-selling author with her first book, Drug Mule, having sold over 10,000 copies. More recently, Joanne penned her first work of fiction, a passion project almost 10 years in the making. She joins me now in studio to chat about her novel, Children of Sugarcane. Joanne, welcome. Sam, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be with you. Finally, like I said, so this has been 10 years in the making, but um, I've been wanting for more than a year now to chat with you. (laughs) So I'm so glad we are finally sitting down. (laughs) Congratulations, firstly, on your book. Thank you. Secondly, on being shortlisted for the Sunday Times Literary Awards. I can believe it. I'm not surprised. But uh, you are. Yeah, I am. I am. I looked at that list, at the long list, and I thought... There's no way the book is going to get any further than this because there there were such big names on that list. But there were also newcomers to the list who had written so beautifully. And um, I thought, well, you know, uh, it's nice to have been longlisted. It's a real honor to have been longlisted. And I'm happy with that. But now you're on the shortlist and I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting. (laughs) I haven't read the full shortlist. Do you have a favorite? I'm curious. You know, I'm I'm rooting for the underdog on the shortlist, which is All Gamoras Are the Same. Mm. Uh, Tenjiwe wrote that book, and she is just such an unassuming person um, and and didn't expect anything to come of her book. And, and finally, she has been given some recognition, which I think is absolutely wonderful. But uh, I would love I would love Karen to also do well. I mean, her book, An Island, is fantastic. Beautiful, sparse prose. And, uh, you know, I, I, could, I could go on about the writers on that list at nauseam because they are just so talented. Um, that, that's also why I don't expect the book to get any further. But, you know, I, I think I think when we look at the quality of South African writing, um, you know, the, those books are, are a real indicator of the kind of talent that there is in the country. I love the camaraderie in the South African literary scene. I wish I had time and I'm, I'm a slow reader, so I wish I had time to kind of read it all but yes. I'm also I'm rooting for every Corinne Jennings was on the, the book uh, you know absolutely the long list the long list which yeah. is incredible yeah. for a debut I believe yeah. and look it's been a busy year for you I talk about the camaraderies I saw you at uh, Mohammed uh, Haji Mohammed Daji's book launch oh, yes. and uh, Joanne Watson's The Other Me I mean you're out and about supporting fellow authors? I think it's important to do that, especially to to support the women. Um, women have come into their own in terms of writing in this country. And we're, we're starting to see voices come through that just weren't there before. Um, we're starting to see stories that were quite obscure in the past make it to see the light of day. And and I think that that's a wonderful thing. I mean, the, the stories that were considered niche in the past are becoming more mainstream. A lot more women are writing about niche subjects like mental health, as Joy has done in The Other Me. Um, and, and, yeah, I really do want to support those women. And um, at every opportunity I get, I, I do try to. Well, I love it. But you're, you've also been out and about. Uh, promoting children of sugar cane, you are, you ha- you're one foot out the door to the, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Gottenberg 
Gothenburg fair? Yes, you say yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they say Gothenburg, we Gothenburg. say Gothenburg. So, yeah, I'm a day away from that. I, I fly tomorrow evening, also amongst a group of fantastic writers, about 20 of us in all. The uh, South African government is actually taking us there. And the theme of Gothenburg this year is South African literature. So it's a wonderful opportunity for us to actually showcase what we're capable of in this country. Really? I had no idea. Yes, it's really exciting. I'm actually. looking into that. That's, a, yeah. that's, that's amazing. Well, good luck with Thank that. Thank you. So let's, let's chat about this book, your creation. Elevate a picture to me. I, I know what it's about. I'm sure a lot of listeners and uh, viewers will know what it's about. But it's always nice hearing from the author what, in a nutshell, their creation is about. So it's the story of an indentured labourer who came here in the 18th century, uh, the 19th century, I mean. Uh, this is, uh, she's a 14-year-old girl living in the south of India, uh, colonised India, this is. And um, her parents proposed the idea of an arranged marriage to her. And she will do anything to get out of that arranged marriage because she has been the recipient of the benevolence of a very a very wealthy woman, uh, a, a noble woman, so to speak, in the village, uh, who has offered Shanti, my protagonist, a, a small measure of rudimentary education, which has completely changed her outlook on the world. And Shanti just, just does not see herself um, engaging in this. She does not see herself engaging her parents on this issue of the arranged marriage and decides she's going to run away. And she runs off to Port Natal, which is painted as the land of milk and honey at that time. But actually, she comes here to find it's a place of great hardship and trauma. So we're going to get into Shanti's story a little bit more and your writing process. But right in the beginning, you have a, dedica a dedication. And I don't know whether I'm uh, overstepping here, but it is so cryptic and beautiful <laughs> at the same time. I must know more. Can you share? What is your dedication so, all about? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, thank you for asking uh, because that, that question is not often asked. So it, it's uh, uh, the way I've set it out here, it is, it is the names of all my female ancestors that I know of, both on my father's and my mother's side of the family. Um, Arthur Lachmi, Elizabeth, that is on my mother's side of the family, my, my great-grandmother and my grandmother. Mary and Buckingham and Grace were my great-grandmother and my grandmother on my father's side of the family. And then on the next line, we have May, who is my amazing mother. And it says, thank you for paving the way. That, that is a message to my ancestors. And my daughter, Jade, now all is possible. So it, it's just a little story of the incremental growth we've had in the family over the centuries. Thank you to these amazing women. And it kind of mirrors the, the lotus um, emblem that you've got going through, Arthur. I love it. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> so this book, Children of Sugarcane, was a decade in the making. In the acknowledgements you mentioned, finding online, no less, an image of your great-grandmother, what was that process? How did it start? And, and that so that was the seed for starting to write the book, right? Yes, yeah. I realized when my daughter was born about 16 years ago that I just didn't have much information about my mother's line. Um, I, I had information about my father's line. We, we have a 
pretty good sense of identity on the Joseph side of the family, not so on my mother's side. Um, and I wanted to give my daughter some sense of the matrilineal heritage in the country, in, in, I mean, in the, in the family, because many people of Indian descent in the country don't have that. Um, and, and so that was where my journey began and began with a few questions to my mom as to who her great-grandmother was and why she came here. And the little information that she had was just her great-grandmother's first name, Adilachmi, and the fact that she had come to South Africa as an indentured labourer. And that was absolutely all I knew about her. And I went online and I did a whole lot of searching and I found just this tiny little headshot of her. And, and that was what got me started on the journey uh, as to what the side of the family was about. And so, and it's like a thread that you just keep pulling at and this, this history comes out. You acknowledge, in your acknowledgements again, there are books that, that you mentioned you leaned heavily on. Absolutely. So, I mean, I take this as I love historical fiction just for this reason, because I learned so much. Character-wise, are, are they are the characters fresh or reimaginings of what uh, you think Adalachmi, you know, what she would have been like? What was the process, yeah? Well, I mean, I, I looked at history itself because history gives you a lot of clues. There's a, a heck of a lot of reading that's got to be done. And, and it shows you the sort of uh, the milieu in which they were operating. It shows you the pressures they were under. It gives you all sorts of clues and indicators as to the pressures that they faced on a daily basis. And, and you are able to glean from those um, that, that, that if this woman survived, if uh, by 30 years later, which is, is the, the very next time she is pictured in a photograph, she is an older woman who has managed to have children, educate them, marry across the colored line, start a Methodist mission from her home that she's run for 30 years, um, you know, and, and, and given birth to a family that she's stabilized. Then, then you get a sense that you know, this is this is a strong woman. This was a resilient woman. This was a stoic woman. And, you know, some of those qualities then start to become a roadmap for how you're going to design the characters that are fresh in a way, because they're not her. In a way, they are reimaginings of her or facets of her or projections um, of more modern versions of her, perhaps in, in the form of my mother or my grandmothers or my, my godmother, you know, and and maybe a little bit of me as well. And, um, and and so it becomes an amalgam of past and present, a kind of continuum of, of what I think has driven women over the, in, in our family over the centuries to where we are today. So we're going to get into you writing about the female experience. But the book is largely about uh, colonization, particularly and ironically in this week that the, of the Queen's passing mm. and there's been so much social commentary yes. about uh, colonization, especially in the last week. So how the Crown took advantage of India as a colony and its subjects to work, I suppose, in another colony, South Africa. And when you say it out loud, as I was writing it, when I drafted these questions, I was like, that is Bizarre logic. How did this happen? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But your book showcases so much more. It's um, I learned about the Indian. Well, I knew about the Indian case system, but you kind of think how yes, it was abolished in the nineteen fifties, but still has huge influence today. It definitely does. Yeah, women's education, the perception of educated women, misogyny still rampant the world mm -hmm. over. A woman's bodily autonomy. You touch on 
so much in this book, family dynamics. You know, did you did you have all these topics in mind that you wanted to work into a piece of fiction or did the book's bottom line of discovering your heritage in this way, did it lend itself to that deeper exploration? It, it was a bit of both, Sam. I think the landscape of colonization opens opens your mind to a whole lot of things. It hope, opens your mind to the political aspect of colonization, the socioeconomic aspect of colonization. And then, of course, one, once you start reading the, the history that really talks about public and private, how in, how how the public or the, the the personal becomes political, then you start to see how colonization extends its tentacles into pre- people's private and intimate spaces, and and then it becomes a story of, uh, you know, the the not just colonization, but but what has been left in the aftermath of it that still lingers today. Um, I've I've been saying in a couple of of events that I've done. We, we ought not to simply understand post-colonial as what existed after colonization. It's the after effects of colonization that linger, that create and perpetuate coloniality in our modern reality as well. Some of which our current leaders even engage in without realizing it is, these, these are the, the lingering effects and they now espouse some of those behaviors themselves. And so it's never left us. Um, and, and it has intruded into all the spaces of which you spoke, and it has particularly intruded into the lives of women over the centuries. And, 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 and we can look at the Queen and, and, and talk about how it intruded into her life and how her being implicated into that system has intruded into the lives of other women. Um, it, it is a fascinating kind of quagmire that, that was created. And, and I think, um, you know, when you talk about the feminist aspects and that kind of thing, there, there's no running away from those. Colonization and patriarchy created a kind of double bind for Indian women who were, who were already living in a patriarchal society and were then colonized by, by a patriarchal society. And Shanti, your character, was looking for freedom. She was looking for an escape from an arranged marriage with Mutan. Yes, yeah. But didn't find that freedom. No. Uh, I mean, the, the question is, did she or didn't she? I mean, she finds a certain amount of agency. And that is the irony of indenture. The the irony being that, you know, on the one hand, you, uh, you, 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 you're trying to escape a colonized society in which you are are living with the patriarchy of the men in your society as well as the, the, the patriarchy that you will encounter uh, having been colonized by the British. On the other hand, you, you're going to a place that, that is similarly colonized, but in which certain aspects of your culture through which you've been previously oppressed are going to break down. So the caste system is one example of that. That starts to unravel on the ships. There are religious and linguistic and, and other sorts of constraints uh, on women in particular that break down from, from the time the, the, the ship's journey begins. And Port Natal actually offers women a, a strange kind of paradoxical choice. Uh, they, they are, for every hundred men in Port Natal, there are only 40 women. And that means that women have a choice as to who they want to be with during that time. And so if, if they are not having a relationship that they are happy with, they're not happy with the man that they're with, they are at liberty to leave. And, and believe me, there were consequences for that. There was a huge amount of violence, um, gender-based violence, 
in, in intimate spaces. So there are hundreds of examples of men who killed women who decided they were going to leave them or severely injured them. But, but there is at the same time this will among the women to make more decisive choices about who they want to be with. And that certainly changes the dynamic. Going to Port Nassau is almost an equaliser. In some ways. In some ways. Yeah. However, you you deal with... I mean, you bring in you bring in all the things, Joe. Rape and abortion. I'm gonna get there, but I wanna go back to a very powerful scene. What's one of my favorites in the book, mm-hmm. where Shanti strips in front of her mother. And you kind of think, okay, between women, it's okay, it's commonplace, it's fine, you know. It's you you and you have a teenage daughter, so I'm mm-hmm. sure this was quite touching for you as well. And she would have been Heading into into thirteen, age yes, twelve, thirteen, yes. fourteen, correct? Yeah, when right. you were writing this, yeah, yeah. So she, she, it's just such a heartfelt moment where she shows she's about to get married, yes, and she shows her mother the girlhood of her body, and her mom's like, "What are you doing? Are you insane? Why are you stripping it?" But it's such a powerful scene. Can you walk listeners through that? What was your thinking in terms of the story, Shanti's? character development at that moment because for me it was such a pivotal point in her development as a character I love it that you've drawn attention to that thank you Sam it was such an awkward scene to write I say scene because it's all very visual for me while I'm writing you know rather than a chapter I suppose but uh, you know the 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 act of, of a teenager a teenager from anywhere in the world, you know, who, teenagers being insecure about their bodies, wanting to, to hide their nakedness, being embarrassed to have a family member walk in on them while they are, are changing their clothes or whatever. Um, you know, I, I wanted that to be a jarring scene because even, even though they're two women and they're a mother and child, there, there's still a certain amount of shame around the body, around the female body. It, it is deeply cultural in that, I mean, you've got the sari that is a beautiful garment, um, but that covers up all the parts that ought to be. Um, and, and so in a way, a sari is a very titillating type of garment. And in other ways, it's not. It's just the, the normal dress of people in, in that part of the subcontinent. But the act of stripping that away and saying to her mother, this is my child's body. This is a child's body. This is not a woman's body. It's not ready for what you think it is. And, and I think that is one of the it, 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 it is one of the most pivotal things that that comes into the question of pedophilia, that comes that, that, that we recall when we think about the abuse of children's bodies, because it's still happening all over the world. The, the body of a child is not to be sexualized. And and at various points over history. We've had that happen repeatedly, and we've had it happen with the sanction of society, um, with the sanction of high society often. Um, and, and it was really important to me to say this. I mean, I've, I've been on the board of Women and Men Against Child Abuse for a few years now, and, and I'm often occupied with the thoughts of children's bodies and how they are abused and what is projected onto them, what sort of pathologies are projected onto them. And I wanted it to create that awkwardness. I wanted her mother... To actually look at her and say, gosh, my, my child is still a child. You know, there's, there's, there isn't an ounce of her on that body that suggests she's ready for what she is. That is ultimately what prompts her mother to agree to allow her to postpone the marriage. It, it's not 
the other types of persuasion that Shanti uses. It is the it is the naked truth of this moment that hits her mother that that perhaps just just triggers something in her that makes her realize that okay, I've been through this. I married when I was young. Do I actually want to put my daughter to, through this right now? Let's find a way to postpone this marriage. You can see or you get the feeling that Shanti's mother is torn. Mm. You know, she is dedicated to her husband and she's also part of the system. Yeah. She's also ingrained in it. Mm. With regard to Shanti, I'm I'm curious and I'm asking you to make a judgment call on a character that you've created. <laughs> Do you think she would have had the same view or she would have had the guts to have shunned this idea of a marriage to Muthan if it wasn't for Auntie Saras's influence? I don't think she would have had any knowledge of what was out there if if she'd not been influenced by the education she's, she'd received. And I think that's the plight of a lot of girls in the world, that her sisters do it unquestioningly, right? It's it's something they look forward to and they get to the point where they're of marriageable age and it's a huge celebration when they get married. It is that intervention by Auntie Saras introducing Shanti to this little bit of education that then makes her think, gosh, there's mm. so much more out there. Mm. Why marriage, mm. you know? And especially why marriage at this age? I'm not ready. I have so much more to do with my life. And um, and, and so I think, I, I'm not sure that Shanti's world would have opened up had she not been exposed to that education. So I love the character of Auntie Saras. She's in the early chapters of the novel, um, but you could see her influence throughout and this line I, I struck me on page 33 where Auntie Cyrus is saying to Shanti, you will get nowhere if you continue to believe yourself inferior. Mm. That was a seed planted for me. I was like, yes. And the vulnerability of women in this book is so evident. We, you mentioned both in India and Vakaruti where uh, Shanti comes from and in Port Natal, um, you really do, you know, and on the ship as well, you know, the doctors kind of, they're treated like like animals. They're yeah. just, yeah. you know. Yeah. What was this quote? Sorry, I am going to look for it. Yeah, women on the ship, women were especially vulnerable on the ship. This is in page 118. There were so few, so few rules, so few places where we could hide. It wasn't just the beatings being drenched in cold water or pelted with rubbish. It was also the feeling that every turn there was a pair of eyes hunting us. Whether they were Indian laborers or British men, they all posed an equal threat to us on the ship. Yeah, you're going, you know, challenging that not all men idea. <laughs> I love and without saying it, I'm like, yeah, Joe, I see you. I see what you're saying. <laughs> and like I say, you go there, then you go into the vulnerability of women. Um, there is a rape scene, but it's precursed by a love scene that I think was written so beautifully. So Shanti falls in love. We won't go further than that. But these love scenes are not tender. They're tender, but they're not schmaltzy. Um, and they're not gritty or smutty. It's just really tastefully done. Thank you. That was so hard to write. I can imagine. I it can imagine. It's hard to write. Uh, my, my husband has this idea that I should, um, I should write a Fifty Shades so that we don't, <laughs> we don't have to work again. Um, but but I mean, that's always the hardest part of a book to write, I think, in many ways. How do you do it? And remember, she's still a teenager. She's young. She's mm. young. 
So on the one hand, we've had this whole discussion about pedophilia and what it means to to commit yourself to someone sexually at a certain age, especially when it's forced on you. But I suppose the difference is what, what made it permissible for me and what made it easier for me to write the scene was that Shanti takes it in hand and she decides when she's ready. And she's by that time already had a, a few experiences on the plantation. She has emotionally grown up. Mm. She's not that child that she was when she left Fakuruti. And, and that has changed her. She's taken on adult responsibility. She lives as an adult for all intents and purposes on that plantation. She works as an adult. And so when she falls in love, she she feels it. She experiences it as an adult would. And she makes the choice that she is ready. Mm. She is ready to engage in this in this love act with Mustafa. Mm. And 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 she initiates it. And and for me that was really important and powerful that this was not his his expectation. It was what she wanted. It was her choice. Mm. And choice is a a big theme with art it being overtly so. This then, these scenes, beautifully written, as I said, juxtaposed with a rape scene, also written in such a way that it doesn't trigger. I'm sure it would. I'm sure it would, but it's not, it wasn't like, oh, I have to put this down because I need to recover from this moment. You liken the rape to an attack by a snake. So you went the metaphorical route. Was it for that reason to kind of tamper the harshness of rape? What or or did you have other reasons for for writing it with that metaphor in mind? So I think you're always you're always making choices about violence, right? When 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 you're writing in a country or from a country like South Africa, and we're surrounded by it, we understand it in all sorts of ways. But I was not I was not entirely sure that we understand colonial violence. Because although we talk about decolonization all the time, I'm not sure we actually know what was done to our ancestors. And and indenture being one of those stories, one of those narratives that was brushed under the carpet for so many years and only told in isolated little pockets um, and wasn't a mainstream story in this country or hasn't been for the last few years except among academics. Um, I, I thought it was important to gauge what violence I was going to depict and how I was going to depict it. And so I felt at different parts of the book, one would have to make those choices. And and therefore, the, the violence that occurs in the sugarcane fields, for example, is very overt. There are beatings, there are floggings, there are other types of violence that result in death. I thought it was important to actually depict those things. My dad, who was reading one of my earlier drafts, said to me, gosh, does this have to be so brutal? And I said to him, Dad, people don't know. People don't know what happened. Uh, In the existing canon, there are certainly implications of it, but there was nothing that, in my view, honestly told told the or depicted the actual extent of that violence. And, And so I felt obliged to actually come out and say, I'm going to go the whole hog with this. But rape is a daily feature of our lives in South Africa. We we know it in all its its insidious forms, and I mean it it, it happens within the context of you walking down the street and, and you're grabbed by someone and you're raped. It happens within families. It happens within marriages. It takes so many forms in this country, and we've we've come to know the beast of rape intimately. And so, how does one deal with rape in a country where? The, the narratives around rape are just so so ubiquitous, 
but also so devastating and triggering for people. And so I thought, I'm going to go back to something that I think, I'm going to go back to a form that I think could could still make it a fairly horrific event, but could somehow veil it so that you would need to, to sit and break that down for a while. At an event I did the other night, a lady said to me, I read that scene and I had to read it a couple of times to figure out what what it was. Was she fantasizing about this? Was she dreaming about it? Or did it actually happen to her? And I thought that having to penetrate that surface as a reader and make the reader work just a little bit harder to get to the bottom of what happened there would would be a better way of dealing with mm. it. Hundred mm. percent. It's it's exactly the opposite of a cop out as a writer. You 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 did exactly that. You made the the reader work harder. And for me, it really embodied how often in trauma the victim detaches and mm. also needs to make sense of what's happening yes. to them. Yeah, yeah. It's and and it happens so many times to her. Shanti is in a fog for the entire duration of those attacks. She doesn't know what's happening to her. She doesn't know why it's happening. She's ashamed of it. She's not able to tell the, the people around her that she's closest to. It is an alternative reality when he mm. walks in there and does this to her. Rape as a concept isn't normalised for her. No. It's normalised for no. us as yes. readers. Yes, It's not normalised for her. No, it's bewildering for her. Mm. It's bewildering for her. And, and, and that is when I think we realise that there's just such a difference between falling in love and feeling desire for someone and wanting to engage in a sexual relationship with them, even as a young person, and having it forced onto you. That 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 is the horrific schism that occurs: is that she almost doesn't believe it's possible, and when it happens, it shatters her. So, on page one thirty-three, you're speaking about that violence perpetuated on on the endangered and. Um, you know, that just became commonplace then. And you mention it was actually after the depiction of her first flogging. Mm. And there's one line where you write, our scars gave rise to a strange sisterhood. They show their backs to one another as they're washing. Beautiful sentence and harrowing and uh, jarring for me. I, t- I took note of that. Similarly, the rapes are prevalent and that also gives rise. That's a, the, those are also scars that give rise to that sisterhood. And I won't dwell on it, but there is mention of abortion. And I don't want to spoil it totally for anybody who, who hasn't read the book. But I'm fascinated. This is, we're talking 19th, late 19th century. Mm. You know, yeah. you, you kind of think this is a now issue. It's not. Did this, so in your research, did this happen? Is it Chinama? Yes. Yeah. Did people like Chinama who helps the individual, the individual who is getting an abortion, um, you know, and it is very, there's a sort of traditional medicine thing going Mm -hmm. on. It's, it was fascinating to me. Is this true to history? Is that how things happened what did your research tell you (laughs) so so it did happen it did happen very widely and and it's very interesting because in and among this this difficult kind of setting in which women are trying to negotiate power over their bodies and and don't have much there are women who are acting as medicine women as you say 
uh, they are the sort of healers within the community. They're usually older women. They are a kind of support system to the younger women. And and during indenture, there were these women. You might see on the on the cover, Preg's Govender, author of Love and Courage. And we had a discussion about this as well at length. Her grandmother was one of these women. No. Yes, yes. And oh, and, wow. and and she spoke she spoke very beautifully to me about how these older women formed a kind of support system for younger women who found themselves in trouble. So they knew very well what was going on the, on, the, on the plantations and in other such spaces. They gave these women a way out and they gave them some small semblance of reproductive rights mm. and control over their own bodies. And again, the link to current events <laughs> yes. is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, while you're writing this and your book is, you know, that was earlier this year, your book was published last year, you're kind mm. of going... Who, is, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? It's a handmaid's tale moment in yes. in history for the US anyway. But but I suppose it just goes to show that there's this endless cycle, right? Mm. Whether uh, I mean, one historian says when we're writing the the past, we're always writing the present, mm. and that is true, because these are issues that have barely changed or that come back and morph and and reinvent themselves, but are actually the same issues that have lingered over centuries, and women's rights of all kinds are one example of that, is that they've been negotiated over centuries, there have been small victories over the years and, and the decades and the centuries, and then they, they, these conservative sort of thoughts and ideologies resurface and try to take hold again. Um, and, and then you've got other feminists of, of, of the, the, the more modern age trying to fight them. So women have, have been caught up in, in, a, in a part of history that, that has been fighting much the same battles for centuries. Shanti fights a battle at the end of the, the book, which was also such an education for me, the, the court scene. So there is a jury, which South Africa doesn't have. We don't Not have anymore. juries anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fascinating for me, all white, all male. <laughs> like, does she stand surprise, a chance? Surprise. Yeah, come on. <laughs> and I don't know whether this is a good or a bad thing for you, but for me, it's very much not mirrored, it, it resembled where the crawdads sing. Oh, yes. Sedelia yes. Owens. I definitely think that, think that for readers who haven't read it, it will scratch that crawdads itch yeah. where, you know, controversy, Sedelia Owens' controversy aside. <laughs> yes. But for fans of, of that book, that I loved the, the court scene, what transpires there. Um, so that that is all also true to South African history. That's how we ran things. Yes, yeah. It was amazing <laughs> to actually go and read up on that part of history because I, I least expected to find a jury system for starters. Um, I didn't know there was a jury system at that time. I did not know that judges were riding about on horseback trying to serve all the different courts at the same time and that one of them drowned during a storm on the riding from Peter Maritzburg to, to Durban to actually you know oversee a case. There, there are all sorts of interesting stories about the system. I mean, who would have thought that there was a link between epilepsy and murderers? That was one of the big theories at the time, you know, that that if you had epilepsy in your family, it predisposed you to murder, to committing <laughs> murder, you know. So, so they all sort of the the all these interesting little quirks that came out of they actually came out of a thesis largely that uh, Pranisha Badassi had written my, when my blood became hot uh, or my yes it's something it's something to that effect I hope I'm remembering it correctly and um, it, it, it's based 
on cases in which indentured laborers of one kind or another, largely in the domestic domain though, turned on their masters during colonization in, in Port Natal. And there are wonderful stories there of their court cases and the composition of, of, of juries and that sort of thing. And it was most useful in, in re- recreating that. Oh, I love those scenes. Like I say, for fans of, of where the crawdad sings, for, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a good or bad thing, considering <laughs> what's happened with Delia Owen since, I don't know. But it, it's, I mean, and that's just a small part of the of of your book. You, I want to go back to something you said about history, and um, I'm going to let you read it because I've read a few quotes from your book, but I really want to hear you read this. It's on page three thirty one, the last paragraph is so powerful for me and I had to look carefully to find something that's not going to be a spoiler. (laughs) So just that last paragraph, but I do not suppose it is so powerful. But I do not suppose it is ever possible to undo the past. Wherever we go, we leave our impression and all the generations that follow are marked by it too. It occurs to me that the past is neither carved in stone alone nor recorded singularly by the quill. Perhaps it is etched into the flesh, bones and memory of human beings and travelled silently into the veins of our descendants. Perhaps the only measure of hope lies in the future, for as long as it remains unwritten, it is all we mere mortals have the power to change. I love that. (laughs) And this, this for me, is where your role as author... And it's right at the end (laughs) where your role as author converged with your experience as a journalist. And this month marks Heritage Month in Mm -hmm. South Africa. And there's so much to say on what Children of Sugarcane means for many South Africans, not only of Indian descent, you know, frankly, for, for people with a colonial heritage in South Africa, you're saying something in this paragraph. And in the context of the book, we know what you mean What about in the context of South Africa? Because I feel like there's a lot of bearing of what you say here on where we are as a nation. So so that paragraph, and and that was a very well-chosen paragraph, Sam, because it talks to the intergenerational trauma that that we're all carrying in one way or another. I think we are all children of sugarcane, whether we are descendants of the colonisers themselves or whether we are the descendants of those who were colonised. And... And, and we're living so strongly, apartheid having been a perpetuation of colonization, we're living so strongly with the remnants of it today. Um, and when I spoke about the coloniality of our, of our current leaders, there is a kind of perpetuation of, of the ideology of colonization in the way they rule today. And we mustn't, we mustn't in any way detract from the fact that they too are capable of the same oppression that the colonizers were. It doesn't matter if they are of the same color skin that we are. And, and so when I look at the story that is set 160 years ago, I find it so hard to swallow the fact that we are living in a country where people are still living like Shanti and other indentured laborers 160 years ago. How is it even possible that 30 years into democracy, more people have not been able to reap the benefits of living in a, in a free country, in a constitutional democracy. Um, and that's not to say that 300 years of colonization can be undone in, in a tiny little fraction like 30 years. 
but we could have started working towards it at the very least, and we haven't. There have been tiny little incremental successes here and there, but look at where our country is like now. Look at the government that we have in power now. And I'm sorry, in no way have they uplifted people, in no way have they have they given South Africans who have suffered for most of their lives, particularly the elderly people in this country. All they've had is the right to vote. They still live without running water. They still live without electricity. You know, they they, they, they get a, a, a tiny little pension that they're forced to, to scrounge about with. It's, it's, it's horrific. And it is offensive at the same time to see our oldest people living in the way they are, our most vulnerable children being, being treated the way they are in this country, not being given the education they deserve. And it's convenient to do that because, because so long as you offer the standard of education in the country, people will keep voting for you. Illiteracy rates will become high. Fewer people will critically analyze what you have to say and stand up to you. So it suits our government fine to be producing this level of education in the country. It is wholly unacceptable. And if you are keeping people in the position that other people lived in 160 years ago, then you are as bad as our colonizers. And, and I, there's, there's no other way I feel about it. My blood, my blood boils when I think about what is being done to the people of this country right now. Well, how grateful we are for voices like yours, Joanne, and books like this. Not only was it entertaining, but look at the discussion that it brought forth. I want to know what is next for Joanne Joseph. Will you continue with fiction writing? Sam, I'm not a career writer as a lot of people are. I mean, there there's some wonderful people on, I mean, on this this shortlist, for example, the Sunday Times Literary Award shortlist, who are career writers, who are brilliant, talented people who will be writing for the rest of their lives, no doubt. I don't know if I'm one of them. I had one story to tell um, that that stayed with me for a long time, and that I had to get out because it was just. You know, it, it, it becomes overwhelming to live with the story inside your head and your body for so long. And, and so I got it out on paper and that's what it is. And um, <laughs> I, I don't know if there will be another one. Um, right now, just continuing with work, spending as much time with my family as possible because I'm no longer on that five-day media treadmill, which is a wonderful change in my life. I can imagine. Yeah, and um, I'm studying as well, so so that that is an added pressure. Um, and, and I'm just concentrating on that, that sort of stuff for now. Well, I have to say that... You left me wanting more, but that as an artist is what you want to do. I want to know what happened with Raksha and her love story. There's so many these characters. <laughs> I want to know more, but I respect um, what you're saying as an artist. And sometimes it just, it is what it is. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. A lot of people have asked for a sequel. Um, I'm but, not alone then. <laughs> no, you're not, to alone. Know. you're not alone. Sam. <laughs> but uh, I, I think... I mean, I didn't write an ending to the book. The reader wrote the ending. And you find a lot of people commenting on the ending and say, oh, I didn't like the way it ended. I didn't want it to end this way. I didn't. And, and, and what they're saying is based on what they assume happened at the end. And that's fine. Um, but I did not want to write that end. I wanted the reader to close it for themselves in, in the way they thought it should. Mm. It's not closed for me, Joe. It's not, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll live You'll with get it. over it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for letting me pick your brain and uh, chat about this. I hope it's not the last time that we chat. 
Thank you, Sam. It's been so lovely being with you today. I really appreciate everything that you've uh, you've asked me today. It's been a wonderful interpretation and analysis of the book. Thank you.